0: If you have a Bible and you'd like to, you can turn to the book of Proverbs. A reading from God's word comes from Proverbs chapter 8. We'll read verses 1 through 11. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks this day for bringing us safely before you and assuring us of your great love in the Lord Jesus Christ pressing upon our hearts that it is not the works that we have done which has made a place for us here in your presence in the blessing of eternal life but so that you may be praised that your glory may be known and indeed because the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished and satisfied all the demands of justice and righteousness. And so we ask now that you'd be pleased to continue to uh, build us up in faith and hope and love, continue to magnify your name, Lord. Our thoughts are far too low of you. And so we pray that you would uh, raise us heavenward. And that you would showcase the excellencies of your name, you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we may sing your praise and go on singing until the day that Christ returns and that song is all in all. We pray in Christ's name, amen. take our sermon text from the second commandment, Exodus 20, four through six. This is God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thus ends God's word. Thank Question 52 asks, what are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he hath to his own worship. God is so good. I'm struck immediately by the fact that he gives us reasons as if he needed to do that. It's infinitely kind of him, isn't it? We don't even like to give our children reasons. We say, because I said so. <laughs> And that's it. Here, he gives us reasons. He needs no reason. (laughs) He's God. And yet he condescends to us as if somehow we were equal. He says, let's reason together. What? Let's reason. Just be reasonable. What? (laughs) A number of commands have reasons annexed, and so the Westminster... Catechism rightly draws our attention to them. The reasons are random. They're tied to what is specifically commanded. We're considering that God has commanded not just that he alone is the proper object of worship, but because of who he is and because of who he, we are, that the manner of worship must be received directly from him. That it must be prescribed, that we're not free to invent, we're not free to approach him however we deem fit. There's something remarkably appropriate to the creator-creature relationship, indeed the holy one-sinner relationship, which bows to the terms of his demands, (laughs) especially as we draw near. Think of the absurdity of that. No, I'll draw near on my terms. It's ridiculous. And yet we're guilty of that. are we not? Sin is ridiculous. Your sin is ridiculous. My sin is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's shameful. And yet we convince ourselves it's reasonable, dignified. We're fools. Frequently, the Lord gives us reasons here to showcase once more the excellencies of His goodness, the excellencies of His infinite condescension, His voluntary condescension to treat us as somehow equals. Let's reason together. I'm God. That's the first reason. I, the Lord, it says. You shall not approach me any way you seem fit. Why? Because I am the Lord. Westminster Catechism brings out he has absolute sovereignty over us we're disadvantaged here aren't we most of the time we live under the delusion that people only have authority over us if we give consent the consent of the governed this is a relatively recent development in political history the consent of the governed This was not the experience of the vast majority of human beings. We talked about the divine right of kings for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. People weren't turning out in ancient Babylonia to cast their vote for Nebuchadnezzar. They were at Nebuchadnezzar's disposal. The book of Daniel actually ratifies that vision and says, yeah, I've actually given him all things. Thus says the Lord, not just men, animals, they're all into his hands, thus says the Lord. So when someone insists upon their rights, when someone insists that they have absolute rights, we're at a disadvantage because we have ratified the delusion of our autonomy in a political system, which believes that we can be governed in so far as we consent to be governed. That's not true in any absolute sense. It's a quirk of history. <laughs> and we'd be fools to project such a notion upon the heavens. But we do, don't we? We absolutely do. We do it with our churches, don't we? Well, I'll follow along with this church insofar as it suits me. I'll agree with this church insofar as I've already determined what's right. It's absurd. amazing how thoughts are contagious like that right <laughs> you can't quite quarantine thoughts the way you think about one thing has an inevitable way of affecting how you think about another thing thoughts are slippery like that contagious god has unequivocal rights over us <laughs> unequivocal absolute That's what it says, I am the Lord. Absolute sovereignty over us. He's patient, remarkably patient, isn't he? He's far more patient than we are. We won't stand for our children disobeying for a second without flinching towards anger and irritation. He's tolerated the vast majority of human history, defying him flagrantly and still extending them good. (laughs) He's far more patient than we are. How wonderful this God is. How good, how kind. It's remarkably fitting that he has the right to prescribe exactly how creatures, nay, sinners, approach him. And yet, very frequently, we utter that defiant why. As parents, we have such a hard time with why, that why stage of development with our kids. Not like the inquisitive why, like, why do bees make honey? That's interesting. But like, why in the defiant tone, like, it's time for dinner? Why? Finish your dinner. Why? It's time for bed. Why? Why? As parents, we get irritated at it, and yet we strike the same pose before God, don't we? It's time to gather for worship. Why? Show me where it says morning and evening. Why? 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 That's how you sound. Mm -hmm. It's how you sound. Mm -hmm. It's how we sound. And it's shameful. Ridiculous. He has an absolute right to prescribe how he is to be approached. But it's not just that he has the absolute right to prescribe how he is to be approached. We have the absolute need for him to prescribe how he is to be approached. How do you approach heaven? How do you get there? Let's just bracket for a second, the question of will we be accepted when we get there. Just ask the question, how do I draw near to heaven? Mm. How do you approach God? It's not something that we have the wherewithal to figure out. (laughs) Even the most directionally challenged among us usually get to where they're trying to go at some point. Mm. If you want to make your way to Duluth or Chicago, even without a GPS, you'd probably get there eventually. The same is probably true for Dublin or, or Paris or Tokyo. You could probably, if you had enough time and you set your mind to it, even if you weren't great with a compass, you'd get there eventually. What about the moon? What about a neighboring galaxy? what about the invisible heavens (laughs) how do you draw near Mm. God has the right to prescribe and we have the absolute need for him to prescribe how we draw near to this place that we can barely even fathom let alone draw near to this is why Moses was instructed To construct the tabernacle according to the exact blueprint and design he was shown on the mountain. Why? Because we can't approach heaven on our own initiative. We've tried. Babylon. Tower of Babel, right? That's what it was. Let's build our way to heaven. Chaos. We've tried. There's no approach to be had earth word (laughs) this is the loveliness of Christ's glory when he says that no one has ascended into heaven except for the one who has descended from heaven the son of man John 3 it's part of the wonder that he opens up in John 1 he's like you're going to see more wonderful things than this you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon the son of man He's prescribed the way to heaven for man. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way. God not only has the absolute right to prescribe how to approach. We have the absolute need for him to prescribe for Paul says that he dwells in unapproachable light. It's a wonder that Christ brings us near, is it not? You marvel at that? That we draw near to the place of unapproachable light week in and week out. We draw near to the place of unapproachable light week in and week out. We draw near to the place of unapproachable light week in and week out. Wonder of wonders. It's marvelous to say the least. It's wonderful beyond description. It's a gift that staggers the imagination. And it's been given to us freely. God has the absolute right to prescribe how we worship. We have the absolute need for him to prescribe how to worship And this he's given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's taken us for himself. And so the second observation is not just that he's creator and this absolute sovereign, but he's actually our God. And so it says, I, the Lord, your God. Why are we to heed this instruction to worship him only as he commands? Because he is the Lord, our God. The question says that, the second reason is his propriety in us. We don't use that word a lot. Propriety means something different now. means that which is appropriate or acceptable. That's not what it means here. Propriety means he owns us. <laughs> he owns you. No qualification. In an absolute sense. The images scripture uses to press this upon our heart are rather stunning. Mm. Your clay. Mm. Now he's fashioned you into a vessel of mercy. His name be praised. There's still clay in the potter's hand. He owns you. And we say he owns all things. That might be an objection, right? Doesn't he own all things? The answer is yes, but not in the same way. He owns us as his people. He owns us as his special possession. He owns us as an object of a special love. Mercy. Yes, it's true. He owned both Egypt and Israel, but only one of them was owned by virtue of his love. He showcased that he owned both of them, right? Certainly Pharaoh was no rival. The gods of Egypt were no rival. The relationship that they stood to him was not that of equals. It was owner and owned. And the owned had gotten a bit uppity. And so he laid them low. Mm. He differentiated between Egypt and Israel is a major theme. I will put a distinction. I will make a distinction. I will differentiate. I will discriminate. God's discriminating love on display. He's placed his electing love upon us. But notice here that his special possession of his people, his Staggering, electing love, mercy, grace is here put forth as special fuel unto obedience. (laughs) Scripture constantly uses this line of thinking. God has set his unwavering, undeserved love upon you, and the response is a return of love. The proper response to the love of God is not to flee from him, but to be drawn to him. It's not license to sin, sought elsewhere. It's the life of holiness embraced in the arms of Jesus Christ. That's the reasoning here. Why do we worship God according to the design that he set forth in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his word, abailing ourselves of these very few things that we're convinced are going to sustain our life in this world of woe until he comes back, indeed even generate a life of love in the face of misery and sin and fear and collapse, which is going to continue. Why do we do it? because He's purchased us and we trust Him. <laughs> the response to the Lord's love extending unto us is love for Him reflected imperfectly but truly. Paul says this, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your members. Lord Jesus Christ makes no dichotomy between The life of grace and obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The proper internalization of the electing love, the undeserved love of God is one that yearns to obey, to move towards him, to follow after him, to worship him rightly. The gospel of love draws us near. The gospel of love propels us in lives of obedience and true worship. Give thanks for the special love of God. It's a wonder we'll never tire of considering that purely to display his glory. As mercy was extended unto you, he elected you before all world. Purely to display the excellencies of this God, not for anything wrought in you. Not for anything foreseen in you, but purely to display the wonders of this God. You're a vessel of mercy. Give thanks for the special love of God. We can also lament that so frequently our privileges do not translate into humble awe and adoration, do they? This is one of the most bewildering incongruities. It's sad beyond telling that we have such a rich articulation of the riches of who God is and what he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And somehow we make that an occasion for our pride and our boasting, looking down upon others, especially other Christians. We ought to attend with care and zeal to pure and right worship. We also are to be mindful of the absurdity of our sinful hearts, which would boast in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ, which includes our so-called pristine reformed liturgy. And we do well to remember That as much as we think we care about pure worship, God cares more, which is the last point. He's our jealous God. That's what he says. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And it flows, doesn't it? We are his special possession. He has set his love upon us. And that's the context in which we consider this identification, this revelation of God as jealous. And it is the last reason that we have for attending carefully to right worship. I am a jealous God. And the question explains that as the zeal that God has in his own worship. The zeal that God has For his own worship. I think it's fair to say that we're prone to think that violations of the second table of the law are much worse than violations of the first table of the law. We think sure idolatry is bad, but adultery is worse. We sure sure self-love is bad, but murder is worse. And the plain truth of Scripture is we violate the second table of the law because we violate the first table of the law. Isn't that Paul's whole argument in Romans 1? He doesn't start with the dreadful list of sins against man that you can find enumerated in verses 29 and 31. That's the end of the argument. Where does he start? Verse 21, For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. It all starts with false worship. They forsook God and made idols. And subsequently became barely recognizable as human beings. (laughs) Those two are closely related, but there's a very plain order in Scripture. People hate each other because they hate God. (laughs) People do whatever they want to one another because they don't fear the Lord. People view one another as objects because they don't worship the true and living God. God says, I'm a jealous God. And we can understand why. It follows from his special love for us. The revelation of Yahweh is God can seem somewhat clinical or cold. Perhaps not resonate. And so he actually reveals himself as husband. He took Israel to himself, even there, as a covenantal ceremony, where he took to himself a wife. That's exactly what Ezekiel says. It's exactly what Hosea says. There's no such thing as a disinterested lover. There's no such thing as a disinterested husband. It's a contemporary and modern absurdity. I don't know, perhaps the Stoics tried to get there. I'm sure they did. But I can't imagine Marcus Aurelius was thrilled if somebody messed with this woman. <laughs> it's amazing how frail philosophy feels in the face of some of those more base, primal exchanges. <laughs> The notion that somehow you can watch disinterestedly as the object of your love goes and gives herself to someone else is ridiculous. I met a a very famous anthropologist. It was Margaret Mead's daughter. Can't remember her name. That's okay. (laughs) She came and she lectured at the school I went to. We're sitting in a class, and she's trying to convince me that... Not me in particular. I mean, there were only like 20 kids in there, so it was rather intimate. She's trying to convince us that monogamous marriage was a social convention. She's an anthropologist. And she's trying to convince us that morality, conventionally conceived as a social convention. The notion that you can write the heart in a different way if you just try. It's ridiculous. The two shall become one flesh. This was the way it was from the very beginning that the Lord uses this image of exclusivity and intimacy to help us understand the astonishing goodness which has been extended unto us. The astonishing mercy which has been extended unto us is wonderful. And so the thought that He would just sit idly by as his people give themselves to nothing. To worse than nothing. The image that's most frequently associated with Israel's idolatry is what? Prostitution. Spiritual fornication. Why? It's barely a metaphor. It's just barely a metaphor. I say that for two reasons. One, they were invited to consider their relationship to Yahweh as a marriage. (laughs) But two, it was also defiled with some of the most disgusting practices you can imagine. Their life of idolatry. You can read about it in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It wasn't like they were just going to a different building and doing some different things to a different God. They were giving themselves to foul sexual practices. So the language here is appropriate. He's a jealous God. His people he won't watch as his wife defiles herself under every green tree. It's a stunning image of our spiritual infidelity. A jealous husband is an iteration of his goodness, because <laughs> there's no such thing as a disinterested husband. The Lord took to himself a people publicly He publicly broke this relationship with him. The wonder of Hosea is that the Lord's steadfast love persists in the face of such treachery that the Lord did not cast off, though his people had flagrantly been unfaithful in a dreadful and egregious way. There's a certain fittingness to this extension of the iniquity of idolatry unto the children. Why? Because if it's spiritual fornication, it's not just the adulterers who are caught up in that; it, It's the offspring as well. So he specifically says, I'm visiting this iniquity into the third, into the fourth generation. And fits with that image of a. Idolatry and spiritual adultery. But the practical matter, too, was that idolatry was a family affair. (laughs) That's what Jeremiah 7 puts forth so plainly. Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they're provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? again the goodness of god so on display here he's willing to clue us in that our own interests are being violated that's very generous of him <laughs> he says it's not even in your best interest to do this and yet you do it that's condescension <laughs> that's kindness families aren't neutral entities This is justice that he puts on display here, extending it to the third and the fourth generation. It's justice. But even in this, there's mercy. Notice how he arrests it. He arrests it. It's not for generation after generation unto perpetuity. He stops it. And even here in the face of justice, what is magnified? Mercy. It's stunning. Mercy to thousands. Whether you take it to thousands or take it to thousands generation. Either way, the more impressive, the more astonishing number is affixed to mercy. Mercy. It's how he revealed himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, merciful. Praise God for his mercy. This became the refrain in Israel's history, who is like you among the gods, merciful and compassionate. In the fullness of time, this mercy was set on full display in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to gather Worshippers, not just from Israel, not just among the faithful who were waiting, the Messiah, but those who had given themselves over to the baseness of pagan idolatry. From these, the Lord gathered and brought near those who were near, those who were far off in the mercy of God now have access in one spirit to the Father, to the praise of his mercy. This passage struck home pretty intensely. I'm sure it does for a number of you. Any number of our parents were idolaters. (laughs) And yet we received mercy. We weren't made to drink the full cup of even their iniquity. Pray the Lord doesn't force our children to drink the full cup of ours and rejoice that we've been given a different cup altogether. Not the cup that we deserve, the cup that the son purchased and filled with salvation and joy to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Mm How good you are, O Lord. Bless us as we consider these things. Strengthen us in the assurance of your love and your purposes of magnifying your excellencies the world over. Make us attentive to your song. Make us attentive to true worship, Lord, that our heart's earnest desire is to run towards you at all times and in every way. We ask in Christ's name, amen.